Hi everyone, we have Debbie Smith with us from Swiss Re. Um, how are you doing today, Debbie? Oh, I'm doing really well. I'm really looking forward to the Christmas period. It's been a busy year. Just got through a really busy conference season, so um, all good here. Fantastic. I was going to say, it's pretty intense this time of year on the conferences and the awards and everything like that as well. Well, everybody, we are here today, um, season eight, episode eight, and we're going to be talking about income protection claims, uh, the trends that we are seeing um, in terms of long-term income protection claims and what the industry can be doing to help people. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Debbie, you were just saying that there's been quite a lot of conferences and we actually met at a conference earlier this year, didn't we? We met at Lucid. We did, we met at Lucid, yeah, it was an excellent conference. It was brilliant. It's the first time I've ever done one like that. And, and it was just, you know, we're always trying to, in my company, because we work so specifically with people who do have risks. So we're always trying to get better underwriting outcomes or understandings and everything. And when there was one that was an hour away from where we live, and obviously we're, we're in the middle of the north, absolutely away from anyone and everything, it was just too good an opportunity. And it was just so lovely to be there and see anything. There's some ones on there that were really... um really quite emotive for me as well because um like there was a professor who was speaking about the parkinsons and everything my dad has parkinsons so it was it was really quite emotive um and it was really interesting to sort of like see what they were saying in terms of the treatments and everything like that and uh, gave me lots of um new ideas and um i have to say as well also and i think this can happen as well with underwriting isn't it you can end up in a really bad cycle of self-diagnosis and like suddenly getting really worried so I remember that we were there because um and somebody was talking about familial hypercholesterolemia and they were talking about those little uh, bumps that you can get under your eyes and everything and I'm sat there I'm thinking I'm sure my mum has them I'm sure my mum has them and I got home and everything and I, was, and I looked at my mum's eyes I was like right I was like you've got these lumps it might be yeah, you know, it might be, you know, and she was just like, oh, well, I have been told it could be my cholesterol. And I just looked at her, you know, completely deadpan, like, <laughs> are you serious, mum? And I was like, and my granddad had had like a quadruple heart bypass. He'd always had high cholesterol, but I knew from my insurances because I do have um, like medical things that I get with my insurances each year that my cholesterol is always um, very, very low, which I'm always very proud of. And I have to say it is a competition between me and Alan, my husband. <laughs> as to who has the lowest <laughs> cholesterol. So we, we do definitely do that. And um, I have to say as well that I went for full-on genetic testing. I was like, I'm not messing about with this. We're going to get this tested. And I'm obviously touch wood and fan- very, very gratefully, we do not have familial hypercholesterolemia. So, but uh, that's definitely uh, an example of where you can get a little bit lost in the uh, in the terminology <laughs> and different things that can happen. So um, so anyway, that was quite a sort of random offshoot and a side tangent there. But uh, Debbie, it'd be really good to hear from you. Um, a little bit about yourself. What is it that you're doing? Where is it that your career has been? Oh, gosh, yes. That's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, wow, it's a, a busy year. I'm Chief Medical Officer for um, the part of Swiss Re that covers Europe, the Middle East and Africa. So a big patch. Um, and as a reinsurance company, we take a, a share of the insured risks that insurance companies take on individual lives to their cover or groups of lives and across all of the life and the health product lines um i'm really privileged actually in the work that i do i really enjoy it we we spot medical trends we do a bit of horizon scanning for medical trends that are coming over in terms of treatments or diagnoses finding better ways to identify health risks um, also identifying rehabilitation options for people if they've um, gone off sick from work and um, trying to help them get back so i've always described myself actually over many years as the advocate that sits between the 
insurance company interests and that of the patient body and trying to make sure that fair play takes place in that in that bit in the middle that the products do what we intended them to do um, and we interpret those definitions in a really fair way. I was going to say, that's a, it's a really lovely space to be in, actually, that I think. And I think, you know, that there has to be somebody in that space because it is so, so difficult at times. Because no matter what, I think sometimes it is hard for people to, to understand that, you know, insurance um, and insurance companies, it's a commercial business. You know, it has to have, you know, certain targets. It has to have certain rules. It has to, you know, be able to uphold its promises to existing clients and everything like that. And it can be really hard as an advisor sometimes because you sat there and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, come on, you know, kind of thing. Let's do this better. Let's get this right for this person. And you're wanting to challenge things. And um, and it it can be, it, you know, really hard. But I think what's important is to know that it, there are people like you there who are making sure that things remain fair um, and seeing it from both sides, as you say, probably straddling it. And I think it's probably worthwhile just for anybody who's quite a, a possibly a newer advisor to the market or somebody who isn't even in, in our industry and wanting to and listen to this is that when we're talking about reinsurers, reinsurers are kind of, well they are the insurers of the insurers in many ways so when we all the kind of like the big brand names that people associate with insurance that you'll see usually people tend to think of the people who do their car insurance and their travel insurance and, and things like that as like the big brand names they generally have they they take on the insurance they take on the policies and, and the risks of insuring people but it's reinsurers like where you sit with Swiss Re who then kind of then insure part of that risk so it's, it's it's always a very very strange dynamic I think to sort of think of it as insurers insuring insurers but that that is how it works and it's that lovely kind of play with the um, interests of everybody involved to sort of like make sure that everything's going to be right but uh, but we are here for the income protection so I'll stop going off on tangents um, so <laughs> if we... I'm terrible for that Debbie so I do apologize <laughs> Um, so it's a good idea to probably just jump straight into the data because I know that obviously I've seen you at um, Lucid, I saw you at ILAG recently, and it was uh, quite a lot in there about the data, the statistics, what they're showing, what you're seeing, what you're able to see from that. So so what are the key things that you are noticing about income protection claims? Well, as we know, the main sources of income protection claims are usually mental health disorders um, and musculoskeletal ones. So things there like bad backs, knee operations, that kind of thing. Um, we noticed a trend, though, going back over many months that we were seeing a lot of obesity related claims coming through. OK, so then I remember that coming up quite specifically. And, I'd, and it was it was one of those things where when you don't sit there and like research the data yourself and obviously for myself as well, I wouldn't understand all those numbers and everything in front of me because it's just it's not what I do. But sorry, when that first came up, I thought, oh, I wonder what, you know, it, it was just that thing obesity you know you would think you know you understand with certain things that it might lead to longer claims on insurance but I don't think people would necessarily think of obesity because obesity is such a it's it's, it's so hard in some ways because in some ways it's such a gray area because of the fact that BMI tables are not necessarily always the greatest thing and you know clients that can get quite frustrated when we're doing like BMI tables and things like that and it is that thing of it's so I think if it's not perfect, but it's probably the easiest way at the moment for insurers to get quite a broad idea as to somebody's health, health, you know, how healthy they are, their lifestyle by looking at those BMI trends. Obviously, it makes it very, very difficult if you do have somebody who's very fit and active and uh, quite muscular. But I know that we we talked about that, actually, I think, in one of the the breaks, because we were saying, you know, you, it's, it's really hard because you can get somebody who's incredibly muscular who is maybe very fit and active, like a rugby player or somebody who's doing lots of weights, but then 
there is that and obviously they will naturally have a higher bmi and that is something that we can talk to insurers about and you can get you know potentially more favorable outcomes if you explain the reason why the bmi is so much higher because it's due with weight mass rather than you know carrying in a sense excess weight excess weight um but then we said but the problem is is at the same point isn't it is that when somebody stops being a rugby player or stops training <laughs> that the body's still kind of left with in to a certain degree some of that mass so it was a it was a really interesting side chat to have with you but um when we're looking at the data and the things that are saying about the obesity um about the higher bmi um sorry linking to those long-term claims i, I remember you saying that there was there's quite an issue actually with trying to get that data in the first place and and specifically as well to do with people's medical records mm, that's right so the team of doctors that work in my team, we, we all really spotted a trend that obesity was really underpinning it. It was driving lots of conditions that were actually impacting on people's ability to work. But that wasn't really identified by their healthcare provider as being something that was there to be supported, to, to help with. You know, I think um, I've worked in the NHS for a, a fair while and I think everybody's read the newspapers. We know that the NHS is struggling a bit right now. Um, and we did a deep dive into claims data and looked trawled through all of the, the medical reports. We found that only one in five people with diabetes or, or metabolic syndrome, and I'll explain a bit about what that is, would get um, the support they needed. And when we looked and said, well, actually, do we do anything this, on this in the insurance space? Are we doing something to help this um, in terms of maybe coaching, nutritional advice? There wasn't very much there either. So, you know, really quite a, a big gap. So... Metabolic syndrome um, is something that occurs when, so we eat, we, our body responds to eating particularly carbohydrate or sugary things. And the more often we do that, if we snack between meals, for instance, um, we kind of maintain quite a high glucose level over time. And the body responds to that by um, the amount of, of insulin it produces. And over time, if it has to produce more and more insulin to try and get the body back to where it should naturally be, then we see development of diseases. So I think it's entirely fair to say that um, obesity, just on its own, without any other downstream effects and, and, and illnesses, it's quite difficult to sell that as a rating to somebody who feels pretty well. From an underwriter's perspective, it's about what it gives you a risk for in the future. The risk is really of that, of this developing this metabolic ill health, metabolic syndrome, which is where you see all the downstream effects of having this raised insulin state and insulin resistance. And the body is really struggling to cope with all of those kind of sugar carbohydrate based um, intake. And that can give all those downstream effects of high blood pressure, um, in some cases, high cholesterol, heart disease, stroke, even cancer. And so that's the kind of cause and effect thing that we that we look at. Okay, that's what I was going to say. You've, you've kind of triggered a side tangent in me again. So I do apologize. Um, <laughs> because so I have and my BMI is well within um, normal ranges. Um, but I do have an underactive thyroid. And it is it is hard sometimes, you know, it's sort of like it feels like a unending slog of sort of trying to exercise and it doesn't really do anything you know and obviously if I'm wanting to and it's, it's not to say that I, I I certainly don't need to lose weight but it's just that thing you know sometimes you just like, I want to be a bit more toned and you sort of like you're struggling to get a bit more toned and that and the, the my thyroid doesn't help but I came across something um and I'm, I'm not obviously I know you're a doctor so I just want to be very clear I'm not asking for your opinion on this or anything <laughs> like that we're not going to be saying oh Debbie says you should do this or anything like that but <laughs> 
it was really interesting. I've actually found it helps me and it really specifically feeds into that sugar as well. And this was done by somebody who um, did a lot of the, I want to say um, the, the, the blood glucose monitoring, you know, like those patches that people oh, wear yeah. on their arms. And she yeah, did yeah. this and she's a mathematician and she did all this charting and everything. And it's all about the order that you eat your food. So you eat yes. all your fiber first, then your protein, then your carbs and then your sweets. And it's all to do with if you layer it like that, this is when you probably say, well, it all just goes in your tummy and it's all just doing the same thing. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's a few months down the drain. But it's it actually, it seems to have really helped. And it's really helped in terms of like, um, if you're getting the sweet stuff, it's sort of like, it's, it breaks it down. It's have, it has even longer to break down in your tummy before it actually starts really getting absorbed. Um, so if anybody is really struggling, obviously, I'm not saying that you do this. This is not a medical point of view. Again, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. So <laughs> I certainly don't have any kind of um, backing to it or anything. But it's just something that I've tested myself personally. And I thought it was quite good. But again, that's me going on a side tangent. So forgive, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to respond to that side tangent, actually, by okay. saying, Brilliant. I think the, the whole science of nutrition has changed dramatically. You know, we've had at Lucid, I talked about the, you know, the obesity prevalence, how many people in the population are overweight or obese. And we, we know that actually, ever since we saw the, the guidance about what to eat in terms of low fat, high fiber in the 70s and 80s, since then, as populations across the world, we've just got bigger and bigger and less and less healthy. And now we're seeing a growing body of scientific evidence that actually shows that what we eat um, and the proportions of what we eat is really important. How often we eat is really important. We were never evolved to eat constantly. You know, my children are always being told, you must have a snack. You know, you're getting hangry. You must have a snack. But this is <laughs> this is completely counterintuitive to how we evolved over over you know the centuries. But the order in which we eat is actually equally true. There's 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 clear evidence now that the order of, of, of how you eat your different um, food groups is incredibly important too. So I, I think, you know, even if you've decided that mathematically or intuitively, there is now an evidence basis for that. So I'm, I'm actually quite keen to move away from just looking at BMI as a marker of, of health or future health and actually think about metabolic health instead. So it's exactly the point you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. That sounds really good. I was going to say when he said hangry, I was thinking that's that's probably Alan approaching me from a very safe distance <laughs> going, you've got a bit hangry. Here's here's a carrot. Get your fiber in. Um, but no, that's really good. So when we look at so it's just as like an idea is that how do we check like the metabolic health side of things? Because I'm thinking if it's bod uh, body fat percentage, I'm, I'm voting that we still could BMI because I'm a typical kind of I, I de definitely don't. I say I've got I do have a low BMI, but. Um, I think somebody said, you know, once it's like a skinny, large person, because inside on the body fat side of things, um, it, it is higher than um, possibly what I want it to be. <laughs> yeah, you can look at it from all sorts of ways. You look about, you know, um, so it's possible to have somebody that's normal BMI that's metabolically looks quite unwell. So we can we can test for that. We can look at lipid profiles. We can look at where the body fat is stored. So if it's stored centrally, we know that's more of a risk. So the kind of apple shaped of us. Um, but also it's it's over time um, we can change. So I think the idea that a diet is something that works is pretty much been abolished now. We see lots yeah. and lots of studies that just show that the more you try and think of something as a temporary nutritional change, it, you know, the, the long-term improvements are vanishingly rare. And so 
you know, trying to think about something from a lifestyle perspective, the ability to to have a test that looks at where you carry your um, sort of if you have excess pounds, where you carry them, if it's central or not, what your lipid profile looks like, just all the markers of, of health, really. So, you know, you can have a high BMI for several years, many years even for some and never develop those downstream effects of, of poor metabolic health. Um, but you have to know, don't you? And I think yeah. that's that's the worry. And that's the worry for the government and for the health system is that we've got lots of people wandering around, um, you know, of a normal BMI or not. And we don't really know because we don't test so much um, which of those will be developing significant health conditions down the line. Yeah. So and I think that's where there's some opportunity, really, for insurance companies to do something quite positive, actually, and something quite educational, catch people early. And um, and then we get a bit of a win win. But I'm hope we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say, I think it's really interesting as uh, that as well, because I think there is always certain assumptions when we speak about um, high BMI or potentially some diabetes. I think people, because of the way that the media and the way that TV shows and films, they always tend to go to like an extreme of a situation rather than just looking at the people who are just like in the middle range. And mm-hmm. I always think that when you, you do think of high BMI, you do, you've got a specific image in your mind you know if you sort of like think of somebody has a high BMI they're probably going to look like this and it's not being mean it's just you know obviously it's what our learned experience is but then Mm -hmm. I know um so my husband does um he's well he's done like um is it half triathlons I better not say full-on triathlons because they'll probably say to me don't say that I've not done that much people think I'm like (laughs) super intense but you know he's done like I think it's half tries and there's been people that I've seen doing them and I've looked at them sometimes and you know as you look at them you think oh you're, you're quite big actually and not necessarily looking muscular big you know looking more like they're just carrying weight yeah. I thought and I thought but they are so healthy you know they must be so healthy to be doing what they're doing you know kind of in terms of fitness levels so it's yeah. um it's gonna be really interesting to see how we can do that so that probably takes us really nice into the next bit so what can the insurance industry do to sort of help prevent and also be positive in a reactive way for for people when it comes to these long-term claims especially if we are seeing this link to the the high BMI side of things yeah i mean i think sometimes it's just really good to step back and take a really objective view of something i mean it seems crazy to me that if we know somebody's got a bmi 50 say when they apply for insurance that we take the cover let it run for 20 or 30 years and basically leave them to become more and more unwell over time for the vast majority Uh, and then uh, then they claim you know but is it is it easy? No, it's definitely not. Um, to be honest, no country's public health system has fixed this over the last 20 or 30 years. So I, I can definitely see why we are where we are. But we do know now, though, that science has evolved enough for us to understand that the, the root of so many of these conditions is metabolic ill health or metabolic syndrome. Um, that the fact that somebody's obese really isn't the issue per se. It's, it's what it's doing to the function of the bodies, whether this insulin resistance is developing. And there's lots of, of good books that I can I can point you to, to to read up a bit more about this because it's a really exciting kind of area of science. I would love that. So I, would say, I would really love that. <laughs> yeah, happy to. Um, so if your body's permanently on a kind of sugar or carbohydrate high, then insulin um, keeps trying to, to it keep, keeps being produced, but but it's being less effective to try and control and keep that sugar down. It, it develops something called insulin resistance, and insulin resistance is the thing that's the root cause of so many of the diseases that we see 
being suffered from in the country, high blood pressure, heart disease, high cholesterol, any number of conditions. Even now we're seeing a growing body of nutritional psychiatry talking about BMI being correlated, or poor metabolic health being correlated with mental health disorder. So we learned from the deep dive that obesity and poor metabolic health is largely left alone by the NHS and that as an industry we don't offer any largely very little help or guidance or counselling when we know somebody goes on on risk um, when they've got their cover and then we don't have very much to offer later when they go off sick and I think it's really exciting that there's possible to to change that now and we are at Swiss Re we're piloting a claims rehab project to see if we can do some combined um, nutritional kind of learnings and then some uh, counselling, uh, psychology type stuff. Because you, if you don't handle both of those things, then, you know, it's not going to be as successful um, as it could be. And so that's what we really want to do. We want to try and get to something that's a win-win so that you get potentially people much healthier so they feel able functionally capable to go back to work you've got people that are engaging with you know their social life again their work friends healthier happier customers um, and it's a win for us as well because they're living healthier longer working lives um, and just you know spending more time with their families which is essentially what we're all hoping that they will do Absolutely. And I think, as you say, it is certainly a, a win-win. Um, so I know obviously we've been there through a lot of the, the things that you're seeing, the trends and everything, but um, I would have to ask you about underwriting while I've got you here with me. Um, there's, there's no way that I can avoid it for, for my listeners <laughs> off, just me for just generally picking your brains. But, you know, we're, we're saying all this, we're saying about how we're going to be helping people, especially once they are, um, you know, making a claim, how can we engage with them, as you say, possibly from a physical, but a psychological aspect of things as well. But it's also getting people to get income protection as well. And, um, and obviously lots of people can get income protection and it just goes through very straightforward and, you know, no issues whatsoever, no in premium increases, no exclusions or anything like that. But, we, you know, we are seeing, and I think what's really interesting is that as medical science is evolving all the time, obviously we're getting diagnoses of things all the time and like, on the run-up to things, whereas before things would only be caught once they were like quite in an extreme situation, they're getting caught quite early on. Um, newer things are being identified all the time. And especially as well, post-pandemic, the the amount of people who do have um, a statement where it says, you know, obviously, have you ever experienced anxiety? It's it's very unusual for people to, to not have experienced anything. And I know this is completely not for here, but, you know, there is a very, very confusing kind of... Um, moment for clients for advisors and I'm sure from underwriters as well where we go but what kind of anxiety because you know anxiety is a natural human um process as well in certain situations but that's it that's not for here but what are you what do you think in terms of underwriting now that we're seeing more and more people being diagnosed with things like mental health as well as sort of doing all this stuff to help people in that reactive space and you know obviously trying to help prevent it what can we do to try and open up more for people who do have these um, existing conditions? Oh, that's a that's a big question. I have a go. Um, Thank you. <laughs> firstly, I think, well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we've got we've moved to have lots of automation, which is great because you want the vast majority of things to go through really, really rapidly, get them on cover as, as, as fast as you possibly can. Uh, but there's different companies with different processes that, you know, can tailor to a greater or a smaller degree around the kind of disclosures you want to give for your client. So for me, the basis of this is really the underwriting questions have to ask the right things. 
in the way that gets enough of a disclosure to make the fairest possible decision. So I think it's actually quite a good idea to offer the applicant the chance to make medical disclosures, sometimes on their own or, or online, because not everyone can feel able to share their whole medical history, perhaps with their life partner, So um, if they have one. So yeah. it's quite important, I think, to have the space to be honest about things. Um, I, I know some people know their advisors socially, and it can be sometimes a difficult conversation for some, not all, to be able to talk about their, their mental health um, struggles, um, whether current or historical. Um, but I think as an industry, we really need to try and facilitate disclosures if, if the applicant feels that they're particularly sensitive. But over time, I'm absolutely sure that you're right. You know, we see more and more disclosures now around mental health because stigma is reducing or that the people um, perceive is there and that people are much more accepting and, and able to, to talk about that. Um, I think it's really important that we use evidence-based systems. So, so we provide a, a kind of guidance framework for the, the insurers that we take some of the risk for um, to try and make sure that there's consistency so that people should get a fair decision across the board. Um, but within that, the underwriter's role really is to, to kind of um, liberally use common sense um, to try and, and look at the context. And context is everything, isn't it? It's some applicants will suffer with mental health issues throughout their life, but cope really well. Um, you know, take the help that's there, counselling, medication, may never take a day off work. Some people may need time off in the face of significant life events. And this is something I commonly see um, at claim stage. You can see a series of life events where someone's been really kind of resilient and able to cope with it until the fifth or sixth or seventh thing happens. Yeah. And then it all falls over. And then we can, you know, we can provide some really valuable cover to give them some time and space to to get the help they need. And then, you know, hopefully get them back to, to yeah. their workspace. Um so underwriting income protection is really no different from some some other products for an underwriter, really. It's it's about those kind of base principles, really under, understanding, asking the right questions, understanding the context, using data to to assess the kind of risk of time off work and then trying to be quite consistent about that. Because, you know, it's it, I would hope you try and get a consistent decision from 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 many different places so that we're treating people in a similar way. Um I think the key thing for me is the risk of a health event of any sort just gets more as you get older. The chance of having a rating or having a cover with exclusions goes up as you get older, as, as you know, life events and, and illnesses happen. So the chance to get in early and start your income protection cover at younger ages is really a great opportunity. That's a really good conversation to have to get that protection before life events start. Some people, you know, they would have had um, a, an illness from childhood. So that's a bit more, more difficult. But really, the opportunity to get in there early and get cover before some of those later life events happen is, is really important. And it's and the value of this is so important. I, I look at claims on a daily basis and I see daily how valuable this is when crises strike, when people are diagnosed with terrible um, illnesses or just, you know, life um, gets in the way. Um, and it's really nice that the product steps up and really makes a difficult time more tolerable. And that really is what kind of keeps me jumping out of bed in the morning and drives the enthusiasm I have to, to kind of do what I do in insurance. Oh, I'm glad that you're there to be able to do that. And as you say, you're seeing, you're just firsthand seeing it on. We just need to make sure, as always, as an industry that we're getting it out there, I have to say as well about getting the IP as young as possible, pretty much as soon as my kids start working, I'm just going to get them IP. I'll pay for it myself. I'm just like, we're not messing about. <laughs> 
it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, as soon as they can yeah. get critical illness cover, you're getting that as well. I'll pay for it. It's just that kind of thing of let's just, like you say, it's yeah. just so, so important. And I think as with anything, it's it's so tough, isn't it? Because it's it's always that what if situation. I know sometimes that can be quite hard when I'm speaking to clients because it's the case if I was like, you know, in some ways it's like, right, I hope to never hear from you or your family again in some ways, because if it is, it means you've made a claim, you know, but it's just there yeah. as that just in case and the the devastation from it when it's not there is is just obviously really, really horrible. And it's, I always try and say to my team and my advisors, that, you know, we, you know, sometimes people think of like protection as, as kind of like, I've said this before, it's like the, the bit of like the annoying little sister in the insurance world when it comes to advice, when we're thinking investments and, and pensions and everything like that. And I'm allowed to say that because I'm the annoying little sister. And, um, and what for me though, is the fact is that it's like, yes, pensions and investments are essential, but literally what we're doing with the income protection and everything like that, well, the pensions reliant upon the income, the investments reliant upon the income, you know, and bringing that back in so we don't need to draw into them, you know, quickly. You know, and it's we have people's financial futures in our hands, and we really should make sure that we take that just as seriously as we should be doing. But um, well, thank you so yeah. much for coming, Debbie. It's been really, really lovely to speak to you and to to just like see and hear all of this again because it just each time I feel like I'm just learning something new about the way that the medical side of thing is working with it all. Um. I'm going to be back next time, everybody, with Matt Ran, and we're going to be looking at heart valve disease and what a diagnosis can mean in getting your protection insurance. Um, as always, you can go to the website practical-protection.co.uk to listen to this episode, or you can hear it on all of the major podcast platforms. And on there, you can also access a link to be able to get your CPD on the website too, thanks to our sponsors, the Octo members. Thank you so much for joining me, Debbie. You're very welcome. Nice to see you today. Thank you. Bye.